This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Mark Pally is an artist, advocate, and curator specializing in public art. Uh, Mark consults with private and public sector clients on the planning and implementation of public art projects from complex and large-scale, multi-phased, mixed-use projects to the placement of singular artworks. He was the artistic director of GLOW, a dusk-to-dawn arts festival produced biannually by the city of Santa Monica, and he provided artistic direction to current L.A. Water, a public art triennial produced by the city of Los Angeles. His passion and commitment is to engage the vision of artists in the public sphere, thereby helping to create environments in which the unexpected and often the enigmatic reside as key elements in our common spaces. Please help me in welcoming Mark Pally to the stage. Good evening. It's nice to be here in beautiful Balboa Park and to share with you uh, some of my thoughts and some images from GLOW, um, which, as Jonathan mentioned, is a dusk-to-dawn event that was produced by the city of San Diego, led by my dear friend and colleague Jessica Cusick, who was the cultural affairs manager for the city of Santa Monica. And I would say it was our teamwork which brought GLOW into being. Okay, there you go. Glow, me, Santa Monica. So Glow came about in an interesting way. It was a suggestion from an artist who was in residence at uh, 18th Street Art Center, a um, cultural, uh, cultural facility in the city of Santa Monica. A visiting artist from France mentioned to both Jessica and me that there was an event in Paris called Nuit Blanche, produced by the city of Paris, an all-night art event that galvanized audiences and transformed the city. And she suggested to Jessica in particular, being the cultural affairs manager, that the city of Santa Monica might want to produce such a thing, which was both audacious and um, uh, very seductive as as a uh, suggestion. So Jessica, being the fearless leader and someone who really thrives on challenge and did a little homework with the city and found out that it would be possible and invited me to join the team as the artistic director. We began planning in 2006. The first glow up uh, occurred in 2008. You can see we had sizable crowds. The first year, the crowd was 250,000 people. We were a little overwhelmed. So for subsequent glows, our PR um, objective was to reduce the size of attendance. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which we did by emphasizing GLOW as an art event as opposed to <laughs> so this was the opening ritual in uh, 2008 which I'm not going to describe all of these things there isn't time but I just wanted you to get a sense the sun is going down a crowd is assembled there's music there's speeches and so forth and so on but let's get to the art because I think that's the real meat of GLOW. This is the beach in Santa Monica. You can see the array of projects. The yellow boxes are artists' names. And this is, there are 14 artists this year along the beach. 
It's very complex to organize. Logistics are very challenging. It's hard enough doing temporary art that meets all the security and all of the durability issues, but doing it on the sand raises the ante in terms of uh, stability and logistics. So we, we had quite a lot to contend with. Let's start with this image of a work by Celeste Boursier-Mogenot, a French artist. And as I mentioned, the, the French event, Nuit Blanche, was basically the godmother of GLOW. And in, to salute our godmother, we always had a French artist in GLOW. And one of the, um, I'd say one of the major tenets of GLOW was to transform the beach into the vision that, that artists could, could bring. And here we have one of the iconic images of uh, a beach, which is a lifeguard station, uh, trans- transformed by Celeste's artwork. There's a foam machine hidden up at the top of the roof. This is Hollywood, so keep in mind this is not a real lifeguard station. They were too hard to get. This is a rental from a prop house. <laughs> so illusion upon illusion. And then there was a very complex system of sensors that picked up audio feed from Pacific Coast Highway, which triggered the rate at which the foam was produced. This is another French artist. It's um, Mathieu Briand. And I want to emphasize the importance of artists and their vision as the, as the foundation for any undertaking that uh, produces art. I know that sounds completely sophomoric and uh, probably a bit of a malaprop, but I, I think it needs to constantly be repeated. And here is Metu coming to the beach in Santa Monica, which is a Frenchman. Is, it was a great pleasure. He drops into the sand and begins m- making forms. This was sort of his drawing for what he was going to do. And what he ended up doing was to create this uh, ring of fire, which would encapsulate the setting sun at 6.43 p.m. on the night of glow. And that was the title of the piece, 6.43 p.m. Underneath the ring of fire were a series of uh, cargo containers, six of them, which were placed on uh, trench plates, all very complicated to engineer. But the, the thing I want to emphasize the most is there were 500 gallons of butane situated on the beach. And when we went to the fire marshal to get approval for this, her, her uh, first statement was, I'm here to make things happen. And it was that attitude which made GLOW possible. And that came, for one thing, everyone trusted Jessica. For another, the city worked as a team to make GLOW possible. So always think the impossible. And also, no is not a good word. This is a project by um, Usman Haq, a British artist, who built a lake on the beach so that there would be enough water in a reservoir to serve the, the, um, the nozzle which, which pumped out water 60 feet wide and 40 feet high that served as a temporary screen for projections whose images were determined by audio feed that was provided uh, through the audience who would um, speak into or mostly scream and clap into eight microphones that uh, surrounded the perimeter of this lake that we built on the beach. So here's one image, here's another. These things changed depending on the acoustic level, on the pitch, and so forth. One of the, our objectives was to have participation as a kind of a guiding objective and desire that we wanted the audience to be involved, 
Um, some of the ways were passive. Some of them were storytelling. In this way, um, it's due to, uh, I'd say, advanced technology that could read sound and through software developed by Usman, translated into uh, visual imagery. This is a project by a Mexican-Canadian artist, Rafael Lozano Hemmer. We had a series of commissions that were both very large and small, and some were curated. Others were through competitions. Rafael was invited to be one of our major artists. Obviously, you'll see the kind of budget that was required. This piece is called Sandbox. It's a commission for the GLOW uh, Festival in Santa Monica. And it's basically consisting of two very powerful projectors that are on a crane, um, and then um, two industrial cameras that detect the presence of people who are walking around, and then two sandboxes, which actually beam the presence of the people in the sand to tiny little images in the sandbox. As you reach out to touch those ghost-like images, your um, hands then get amplified, and uh, people then get to share all three scales. The tiny scale of the sandbox, the big scale of the beach, and then the just normal human scale with other people. I think this is, this is a, it's a piece that is very much uh, along the lines of puppetry and theater and shadow plays. So it's very expressive. People like to self-represent. They like to see themselves. They like to play with each other. Um, and I'm, I'm all for that. I think that this is a piece very much about amplifying human presence to, uh, to, um, to this scale. But at the same time, of course, there's other issues that I'm interested in, in exploring, like uh, you know, sort of materializing surveillance, how we can actually misuse these technologies to create environments of connection as opposed to environments of suspicion. Um, I think I think that um, we're um, we're living in extremely lonely times. You know, I think that as people walk around the streets with their iPods, they're listening to their own music. As you you know, you're texting somebody, you're sort of closed in to not connect to other people. Um, there's you know, you're in your car, you're not really sharing on a communal space. So all of these different phenomena have changed the way that um, the urban dynamic takes place. You don't really get to meet other people. You don't get to share and play in space other than in a corporate or in a commercial environment. So I think it's really interesting to create environments where you, no one's selling you anything, no one's charging you anything, just where you're going to, you know, sort of coexist with other people and just relate to them. Not all the projects were on this very large scale, these high-tech projects. We had acoustical musicians um, singing lullabies at the, at the shore. There was a range of things, huge, very spectacular, and more humble. We made use of the carousel. We made use of the Ferris wheel. Uh, we made use of the infrastructure, and we did get the numbers down. We got down to 150,000, so it was a very comfortable one-night event. So thank you very much. So how long did it take people to actually go through it? The audience collapsed at about 3 a.m. So after the first glow, when we 
somehow stagger to a finish at dawn with a Brazilian dance troupe that um, took the audience into the, into the surf to kind of wake us up. Um, we kept it going to 3 a.m., which seemed uh, it was a logical number insofar as bars closed at 2, and we wanted to kind of extend the notion of festivity and celebration beyond when bars close. And also, when bars close, there'd be a new wave of people. Um, so, um, and I would say most people didn't see everything. It was just too, the crowds were too big. Some things required people to wait in line, which they did happily. Uh, the first year we had people wait in line for two hours, um, but we had entertainment and, I don't know, people were just kind of jazzed, so they didn't mind. There was a kind of a beneficence in the air, as it were, that people were kind of thrilled and patient to be there. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And I, I, I can say I was, I was there for that first night, and the scale of the pieces were so, some of the pieces were so overwhelming, and you'd find yourself under piers and in all these places on the beach that you really, you never go and you were there with people all types, all ages. Uh, it was really an extraordinary. I was there for probably three or four hours. That's nothing. No, I know. I know. It, it was. Out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so more with Mark. Uh, let me formally introduce Karen. I've had the pleasure of knowing Karen for um, over a decade. Um, we worked together closely over the years in Houston. Um, Karen's 20-year career has included roles in artistic direction, administrative leadership, fundraising, and planning. Since 2005, Karen has served as director of the University of Houston Cynthia Woods Mitchell Center for the Arts, which is dedicated to the performing, visual, and literary arts. There she, <clears throat> excuse me, there she has hosted artists including Lori Anderson, Jason Moran, Tanya Bruguera, Philip Glass, Bill T. Jones, Karen Beasley, The Yes Men, The Esther Gates, and many others. The Mitchell Center commissions and produces new works through its annual Counter Current Festival and offers lectures, residencies, fellowships, and scholarships. Karen was a 2002-2003 Arts Management Fellow at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., and has been a consultant, panelist, and board member for many cultural organizations across the country. She's a graduate of NYU's Tisch School of the Arts with an MA in Performance Studies and a BFA in Experimental Theater. Um, I can say in addition to that personally, it's been interesting to see Karen work at scale such as Jacob's Pillow, um, a number of film festivals, and Houston Grand Opera. Please join me in welcome Karen Farber. Suzanne, you don't mind if I lower the mic a little bit, do you? <laughs> 
Hi, thank you so much, Jonathan. It's such a pleasure to be here with you after these years that you've been in California to get to reunite with you. Um, so as Jonathan said, I, I direct a center at the University of Houston in Houston, Texas, that's dedicated to performing visual and literary arts. And um, it's Cynthia Woods Mitchell Center for the Arts. And I'm supposed to start with a video, so we're just going to see how this goes. But I'll, I'll just cue it up by saying um, this is a video about our annual counter- countercurrent festival Countercurrent has only been in existence since 2014. And prior to that, we at the Mitchell Center were doing very similar work. So we essentially decided to bundle it all into a week-long festival in 2014. I've been with the organization since 2005, as Jonathan said. So we've been doing these public projects. And you're going to see some slides after this of some of those as well. So I'm holding on this last 
slide for a second because this just gives you a sense of how many artists and also partners we work with. And I know that's something that um, Jonathan really wanted to talk about tonight is, is partnerships. So with that said, um, that was from Countercurrent 2015. We do a video like that some years and not others. Um, but the um, the foreground for that festival was these public projects that we had been doing for years prior to it. Um, so this is something that happens to have been at Discovery Green, working with Suzanne. Um, and you're going to hear a lot more about her programming. This was with the University of Houston marching band um, about which I had been a little bit obsessed for years and had wanted to do something with a contemporary artist doing an, inter an intervention with the band in their full regalia. And, um, and so what happened here was that the band members, um, got, they started out doing sort of more traditional band music, and then they just distributed themselves throughout the park over the course of an afternoon. And people were invited to interact with them. And you're going to see a little bit more of that later on. And, and from here, I'm just going to switch through these really quickly because we don't have a lot of time left. But we've done programming in parks, courtrooms, churches, on the waterfront, billboards, cemeteries, sidewalks, lobbies of office buildings, grocery stores, and a lot more. <laughs> a lot of parks, actually. Um, and, um, and I think the purpose of working in these spaces is really that accidental encounter with artwork, um, that we're coming to people where they are and finding them there and giving them something of a surprise. Um, but the, beyond that, there is this other layer of the programming that we do, and it kind of connects back to why we're a university-based art center doing this. So all of these artists come and do residencies at the university and work with students as well. And even in that video, you saw some student performances. They were working with artists in residence on those performances. But there's an engagement piece to this. So when we had this at Discovery Green, there was also this where the performance just kind of broke down at times, where the musicians started talking to children. And I have hundreds of pictures of this, of what happened in the park. We also um, we received a grant from the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Art to do a bunch of work with artists who are connected to Muslim societies to break down stereotypes among University of Houston students. We brought an artist named El Cid to paint what looked like just a mural um, on the University of Houston campus, campus because that was one of the places where we had the most pedestrian traffic. After that mural was painted, and even during its painting, there were people around and there was programming done to engage audience members, both our Muslim and non-Muslim students in programming. So they met the artist, and even long after the artist was gone, there was conversation around this. This is actually text in Arabic that has a quote from Sam Houston. So a lot of interactive activity. Years before that, we did a project with an artist from Oakland, California, um, originally named Mark Bamuti-Joseph. Some of you might know because he was also running the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco for some time, the artistic direction of that. Um, but he also is a practitioner, and he was creating these park festivals called Life is Living that were all being documented and made into performances. So we hosted two of these festivals. The kickoff was also at Discovery Green, and then the second was in an historic park called Emancipation Park that was, I think, the first 
park built by African Americans um, in the in Texas or in the United States. I don't even know, but it was a, it's a very important park with an important history, and the idea was to animate and enliven the park. So this is what happened during Life Is Loving. So I think I'm probably a little bit out of time, but we'll we'll have a chance to talk more later about these things. Thank you, Thanks. Karen. I think one of the things that has been most um, compelling about your leadership and your work is that you, you really have made, you've created a bridge between the larger city and the university that truly did not happen before. Um, so let's quickly go to Suzanne Tice. Um, Suzanne is the program director of Discovery Green, Houston's highly regarded downtown park. Suzanne is responsible for creating and overseeing a dynamic schedule of over 600 events each year. 600 events. Art, film, music, fitness, cultural presentations, family programming, and spectacular events comprise the free programs and activities that engage more than 1.5 million visitors each year to Discovery Green. Importantly, Discovery Green's programming reflects Houston's diverse culture and frequently brings performance and public art from around the world to the city. Prior to um, her position at Discovery Green, <clears throat> Suzanne served as the first executive director of the Orange Show for Visionary Art. I'm going to say that again slowly. Orange Show for Visionary Art, <laughs> where she helped create the Art Car Parade, acquire the Beer Can House, and list the Orange Show on the National Register of, of Historic Places. Please help me welcome Suzanne Tice. Well, Jonathan, thank you um, for the invitation to be here on this panel with people whose work I admire so much um, in this beautiful city. So thank you. Um, this is Discovery Green, which until... It's now 11 years old. Um, it, was, uh, it was a downtown concrete space. This is where it was in the late 70s. Um, at the top of the picture uh, is where the convention center, the George R. Brown Convention Center, was built. Uh, George R. Brown owned all this massive tract of land on Houston's east end uh, the down, of the downtown district. And uh, he wanted to push development further east, so he built the convention center, donated the land to the city. Um, it, it didn't quite work. Uh, what happened after that was the baseball stadium that you see at the top of this image was built. Um, there were some convention hotels built, and the Toyota Center where the Rockets play at the bottom of this picture. Um, but there was no private development for the 20 plus years until uh, the land where the parking, the, the concrete was in the previous picture became available for sale. And this, uh, the daughter of George R. Brown, a, an amazing woman who was a, um, she was a, a social worker uh, who worked in Houston's juvenile detention centers, but was passionate about uh, philanthropy and public space led the charge to build a park in this area, mainly because of the Alley of Live Oaks that you see in the middle of the picture. So this is Discovery Green the day before it opened officially, the day the first day that the convention, the uh, construction fence was down. 
This is a quote that someone uh, from the Rice Design Alliance uh, just said, and I thought that it was so wonderful because it sort of encapsulates our philosophy of programming. Um, We try to give people Houston moments. And because Houston is the largest uh, among the major cities in America, it is the most diverse. Um, And so people come to Discovery Green and can see see, um, aspects of Mexican culture, of British culture, of French culture, of of Houston culture. Um, Here's the picture of our opening day activities, Um, a movie night in the park, our Zumba class, a cultural festival, kids playing in the park. Um, One of the things that our founders believed is that public space they worked with the Project for Public Spaces to collect information from the public about what they, what they wanted to see in the park because they believed that public space should be designed as if well-being of our community was the most important thing. So um, that guided the mission statement that they left for us, um, for our, our programming. We're meant to be Houston's Village Green, just to provide moments of joy Um, and magic. This is Moon Garden, which was a 10-day installation of art last year um, in September. It drew more than 82,000 people in 10 days to the park. Um, There were 22 of these illuminated globes that that changed colors, and many of them were shadow theaters that had uh, cutouts, puppets inside that told the story of Houston. It was it was a an amazing exhibit. Um, we bring we brought this young woman from Belgium with these flowers that were amazing to float on the lake, and there were Houston dancers performing inside, and then a, a site specific dance created by one at the University of Houston uh, dance company. And the other thing that Discovery Green has done, it has created a dynamic place for Houston to have these large events. Um, This is the NCAA Final Fours uh, music concert that was held in the park in 16, 11 and in 16, and will come back in 22, or 23, I think. Um, It's it's also been the site of the Super Bowl and was, was the the Super Bowl Live festival that accompanied Super Bowl 17. It's catalyzed development downtown. Um, When we opened in 2008, uh, very soon after that, the economy took a a big nosedive, and yet there was still um, incredible development on the borders of the park that continued after 2014, so that the park has now returned... uh, $10 for every $1 in development around us. The other thing that has happened as the the impact of the park has been that the founders of our park have gone on to make, because of the catalytic uh, transformative effect that Discovery Green has had, they've gone on to make more than $150 million in donations to other major park projects throughout the city of Houston. And the mayor has launched a 50 for 50 um, 
so that the idea that 50 companies will donate to 50 parks throughout the country, I mean, throughout the city, so that everybody will have parks and have access to parks. So um, it's been an impactful, it's been an art-filled adventure, and um, I'm just delighted to have a chance to talk to you about it. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you. As, as um, everyone rejoins us here on the, <clears throat> excuse me, on the stage, let's step back and talk about the genesis of your projects. And Suzanne, um, your your projects um, are so they're ongoing. Um, so you have artists from across the planet. You have local artists. Um, so I, I'd love for you to talk more about. Um, as we get into conversations about how you've made these decisions on local artists, international artists, Texas artists, um, how does this all fit into your programming and your mission of the park? Um, so let's step back and talk about the genus. And particularly, um, one of the most important things is the artistic genus of these product projects. What birthed the concept? What were your artistic guideposts? And how ambitious were you at the beginning? Mark, let's talk about GLOW. I mentioned that GLOW is modeled after a, an event that began in Paris, 2001. The mayor of Paris was curious that the, the sense of cultural innovation that had characterized Paris for the basically the first half of the 20th century had withered. And he wanted to rejuvenate that, that sense of experimentation and adventure uh, that really characterized uh, early 20th century Paris. And he sponsored many, uh, both uh, infrastructure projects, events, and um, underwrote institutions. It's a kind of um, support that comes from government that is very foreign to us, um, where I think our government support tends to look for non-controversial, highly popular, easily accessible cultural activities. That's a huge generalization and overstatement with many exceptions, but I think by and large that's, that's a broad brush stroke image that's true. So um, as I mentioned, there was an artist in residence in Santa Monica who, who told uh, Jessica and myself about this event called Nuit Blanche that the mayor had underwritten which continues to this day as an annual event with a huge staff and an enormous budget. And all of Paris turns out for it. Easily well over one million people attend. It's, um, it's a transformative event. So we, we obviously were not going to have that kind of support that uh, could come from uh, government coffers. Uh, but we certainly had that sense of adventure and determination to be innovative and to be forward-thinking. Um, so I'd say that, that characterized our, the, the way we defined the art we were looking for. Thank you, Mark. Mm-hmm. So artistically risk-averse. You were probably a little more sheltered, Karen, because you were coming from a university. But how did you... Um, retain your artistic standards when you started bringing the programs into public space? Well, a couple things um, about that. 
to speak to the genesis of our program, mm -hmm. uh, we were formed with an endowment, but for, to fund our programming, but without a venue. Um, and that is really what led to us doing all of these projects in all of these different spaces. When I was hired in 2005, I began to try to figure out where all this programming was supposed to happen, and it turned out that the university was overflowing already and really had very limited space for new programming. So that was how we ended up doing this programming in public space. Some of what we do is experimental, yes, um, for sure, but I think that w the hope is, and I think this is a lot like the two of you in the programming you do, the hope is that just because it's experimental doesn't mean it's not accessible to everybody, mm -hmm. that these are not mutually exclusive things. It can be experimental, meaning it's something that is an experiment or that we've never seen before in quite this way. Maybe it's undefinable. But mostly, I think it's that um, we're trying to do programming that doesn't belong in the white box or in the theater with the seats. And so it's very difficult to categorize, but in many cases that doesn't make it wildly you know, um, controversial or subversive. Um, I will say also that because we're at a university, though, some of it is a little more intellectual than if we were just working in the public space. Some of it, and some of it not. So I'm actually thinking about some of the work that you have done on the east side of Houston, um, especially along the bayou. Mm -hmm. and some of that was really thoughtful work, a lot about cultural history, some really unfortunate parts of Houston's history. Um, how did you address... Um, the community setting around the work? Well, when we choose an artist to work with, we think a lot about why we're bringing them to Houston. Um, we're not bringing them to do a residency in some bucolic place where they can just think and create. So we look around us, and then we ask them to come and look around. And um, they will often choose the site. And once they choose the site, I think by virtue of the kinds of artists that we select, who are both crossing disciplines and in many cases doing things that make us think and engage with people, um, they will find the space and they, we will build the infrastructure around their project to really connect with the people around that, that site. Mm -hmm. um, so does that answer? I mean, I, really, I am really looking for site-specific work that belongs in the place where it's happening and that is relevant to that place and its people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Suzanne, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, let's talk about the, actually the genesis of this public park. You could have just done a lot of programming, kind of popular programming. You went right for contemporary art. Um, where did that come from? Well, um, I think partnerships are the key, are really the key element here. Um, in our very first season, we had the opportunity, we were approached, as you know, Houston is a very international city, in part because of our port. Um, we were approached by, um, I think, the Spanish consulate. There was a, a group from the Tenerife Danza Lab from the Canary Islands touring and could they, could they perform at Discovery Green? 
And it was a very artistically um, sophisticated performance. Uh, we had only been open for a few weeks, but it was sure, come on down. And, um, and it was really interesting. In a public space, you're not, only, you're not only addressing the people who've come to see the performance, but you're also addressing the public that is there to walk their dog or to have their children play in the playground. And it was an amazing thing to see this esoteric uh, dance performance that was crowded with people that walked by and then stopped to look. Um, so we felt really safe from the beginning to be able to take some of those kinds of artistic risks. And we also appreciated how people loved seeing their culture reflected back. Um, so it became part of our, of our mission. And public art, um, the installations of public art, have been the most popular things we've done. Hmm. Has that evolved over the last few years? Have your audiences changed? Well, we, in the first five years, we were, our public art program wasn't funded as well as, as it is right now. Um, we, as I said before, we opened just when the economy took a great dive. So it took a little while to find the funds to make it all happen. Um, but in the last five years, we've averaged three public art installations a year, and they've been incredibly popular, well-attended, well-received. Good media coverage. Good media coverage. Mm -hmm. So, Karen, when we were having this conversation uh, on the phone, Karen, one of the things you asked um, of um, everyone on the stage was, why are we doing this? Who are we doing it for? Who's the audience? And why is it important? I love that question. Um, Mark, um, why is it important to do GLOW? Um, obviously, we live in, as I think everyone kind of mentioned, the, 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 the nature of our common life now isn't very common. And we don't have many opportunities to celebrate and come together and share space in a, in a, in a way that's very positive and that isn't uh, sort of outcome-oriented as opposed to perhaps provocation and pleasure, which are two words I like to use. And I think I hope that um, they can permeate how we approach art and how we sponsor it and how we experience it. Um, so it, it was. It's important for that reason that we we need to uh, work hard to find common ground, and we need to work hard to celebrate our ingenuity, and we need to work hard to provide for one another and to provide pleasure and provocation, and we need to work hard to allow everyone to find their own meanings. Um, I'm deeply irritated by that concept, what does it mean? I don't know what the fuck it means. <laughs> and I don't care. Find your own fucking meaning. So um, I think GLOW did that. It, it uh, provided a, a sense of adventure and a, and a set of experiences. And um, I think we can rewire our brains when we expose ourselves to the foreign and to the unknown and to the curious. And I hope that GLOW did all of those things. It we did. tried. No, it did. It was a fantastic project. Um, Karen, what are your thoughts on that? 
You know, my thoughts are, are around who's it for because um, it's something I think about a lot. And I do think that if we're trying to attract a particular audience, and for me, it's an audience that has less experience with art. We have to bring artists who they will identify with. Um, so we're not expecting to do something by an artist whose identity or focus and subject matter is totally separate from who we're trying to attract and then expect people to show up and engage with it. Um, so I think a lot about that demographically. I was on the board of a visual art organization years ago, and they were going through a strategic planning process. And it's a small organization, and all the board members were there. And they were going through this exercise to determine who the target audience would be. And everybody had to put their stickers up to vote on you know, who they thought were important. And um, we ended up with this statement that with the limited resources and time that they had, they really had to focus on collectors and uh, people who are kind of um, almost collectors or budding collectors, people who are interested in art already, right? And um, I, it struck me so hard hmm. that uh, I had like a visceral reaction to that, that this is not what I want to do or be. To, to have to give up on the people that are on the, you know, on the outskirts of that equation was just, it wasn't okay with me. So I think that's one of the reasons that we do these things in spaces where we think we're going to draw people who have less exposure. Um, Within reason, because that doesn't mean that for our programming we're going really, really far away from you know our university and the center of town. We just don't have the capacity to do that, right? Um, but there is so much in Houston, as and Suzanne said, it's it's an incredibly international city, and there is so much in Houston that we can give to the populations of people who are living there. So that's the who's it for. Um, I don't know if you asked what does it mean, but I can't do that either. <laughs> but, uh, but who's it for? Yes. And that, what was the other part of the question? Why is it important? Oh, why is it important? I don't know if I said what does it mean, but yeah. why is it important? Why is it important? Um, it depends on the project, right? So we do a lot of work that is directly with communities who haven't seen a lot of art in their communities. We also do, though, a lot of work um, around ecology and economy and energy and power because we're in Houston. And that, again, I think to speak to Mark's comment about this, that doesn't mean we expect a certain outcome when we're doing public art. We're not going, OK, it's for this particular purpose, but it's and it's, it's, it can cause people to open their eyes to something new, see things differently, um, and be expansive. Right. So that, those are the kinds of projects that we, we look for. Suzanne, what are your thoughts on that? Well, who's it for? It's really for all of us. I mean, we are poor when we don't share space and when we don't share experiences, when we live in our own silos. And um, I don't know your city very well, but I know our city. And Houston was a very, has been in, in its history, a very siloed city. Um, and so to share experiences 
with other people is, is liberating, um, to create memories. Um, I, w- I want to say, ten, when we celebrated our 10th anniversary, we put out a call to ask people about their 10 years of memories at Discovery Green. And we featured these 10 children that had grown up coming to the park. And they were from various backgrounds. Um, one woman talked about uh, her autistic son who'd, been, who'd grown up coming to the park and how he could experience all these things because it was, uh, it, he was free to move around. He didn't have to sit. He could come and listen to Jason Moran um, do the Fats Waller dance party because he wasn't in a quiet auditorium. And there was another, there was a father who talked about his kids uh, going through the divorce, that he didn't have the money to take his kids to fancy things, um, but they could come to Discovery Green and make memories. I mean, there there are all these individual stories that add up to the fact that we're richer when we share magic moments together. Yeah, that's lovely. I wanted to talk a little bit about structure and how you function. Um, So if we could quickly do that. Um, Mark, I didn't realize that your structure for GLOW really was what it is. Can you just do a quick diagram of how it worked from a curatorial perspective and from a a leadership perspective? GLOW was produced by the city of Santa Monica, which had an independent foundation. So the city provided funds and the foundation could receive donations and funds from, uh, found, from other foundations or from individuals and so forth. They, Jessica Cusick, who headed the Cultural Affairs Office, was, it, was head, headed GLOW. She obviously coordinated with the city manager, but it was basically it was a program of the city of Santa Monica. So it operated within the, the structure of a, of a civic enterprise. And obviously, there are many kinds of protocols which need to be respected mm-hmm. for all a host of reasons. The upside of it being a program of the city was everyone was on board. I mentioned how the fire marshal, her attitude was, how can I help? The police had the same attitude. How can we work together to make this a safe and enjoyable evening for everyone? So the structure for GLOW was very helpful in terms of how we were able to finesse um, cooperation. It was not helpful insofar as I think we needed to probably raise more money from the private sector. And I think being a program of the city inhibited that a little bit. So that's, that's but I'd say on the whole, the fact that it was a city program was of great benefit. And to your point about being a city program and therefore some obstacles to fundraising, you work in a 501c3 space with board leadership, and then you have a separate programming committee that just focuses on all of your work. Is that right, Suzanne? That's right. We also have a public art committee. What's so their role? Their role is to look at the public art projects, and they don't fundraise as much, but they're advocates, and they help us select the programs that are right for the park. So, you know, what I think is really interesting about all three of you is you don't always do direct selection. You don't necessarily do all of the direct curatorial work. You work with curators as a team in different spaces. Karen, how does that work for you? Well, uh, my structure 
technically is that I'm the director of the center, but I also have an internal board at the university of the directors of the five arts departments. Um, and our contemporary art museum is one of those, but the others are academic units, the School of Art, the School of Music, the School of Theater and Dance, and the Creative Writing Program. So when this philanthropic gift that formed our endowment was made to the university, um, it was really because those departments existed, but it was to build something that was more than just the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. And I actually work with those colleagues to um, you know, hear from them what artists they'd like to bring, and then I help shape those things into projects that mm -hmm. we can actually realize and that have some public benefit as well. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Thank you. All three of you, I, I have gotten the signal. It's now time to do Q&A. So please, um, if there's questions, I think we have a microphone right in the center of the room. I was curious as you were talking about the use of either stadium space or the events like the Super Bowl, the, the return of the NCAA Final Four, uh, when San Diego lost the Chargers, many folks that had nothing, no caring about sports had good riddance. Uh, and yet, I would be interested in the kinds of partnerships when you have those kinds of events and you have not only a football stadium, but also a sports arena and NHL. Um, the NCAA, the Houston Sports Authority, um, what it looks like for us is that we'll get a letter saying we're going out for this bid and you need to block, book, or you need to, to uh, save these dates for us. And... Um, they negotiate, and then and then we negotiate with the entity. So both of those events were pretty grueling for the park. There was, I think, uh, a million three in the ten days of Super Bowl Live that were at Discovery Green, and you could hardly recognize it. I couldn't even show a picture. It was all like a news sports setup. Um, but but uh, we did have some French art. At the, there that was wonderful um, during that time. But uh, so it, they end up being hard on the park, but also we were able to collect funds for it. So it ended up being a positive for us. Um, but it was, it, it's certainly not the regular life of the park for sure. I'm not sure I understand your structure. Um, you're a 501c3, but this is the park. The park is a city park? It's not a city park. It was a public-private partnership under um, Mayor Bill White. It was created so a local government corporation is the owner of Discovery Green. City Council nominates the members of that board, and they meet once a year. They have no responsibilities other than they, they meet. Um, and they have a 50-year contract with our conservancy to manage um, the park. So many of those board members overlap, and um, the city council sort of is at a – they have input in that they can name the, mem the members of that board, but we operate independently from the city. Were, were the capital improvements done through the city, or were they done also? No, our board raised the money. Um, a hundred and I think the project itself was 125 million. The our board raised 54 million, and um, some of the the city provided some of the land. Uh, the question I had really was directed to Glow, and I was wondering how do you sustain 
the momentum of the event and the, and the support for that event over time? That's a horrible question. <laughs> <laughs> it's not your job. <laughs> well, it, it, it was very hard. Um, as I mentioned, the city provided so many wonderful benefits for the event. I didn't mention the extreme uh, cross authorities that dealt with the beach, the L.A. County lifeguards, the California Coastal Commission, the city of Santa Monica, Save the Bay, and uh, the Federal Federal Wildlife, I forget exactly the entity. Um, So we... Because we were the city, we had standing with these entities which controlled various aspects. For instance, the first year of GLOW, one of the projects required, it floated at the bay and it required an anchor to be set into the bed of Santa Monica Bay. And we were able to negotiate that very nicely with the Harbor Patrol. The downside, as I mentioned, was the funding component. And we weren't successful. We um, GLOW didn't occur past 2013. Uh, it was sustained by a labor of love on my part and Jessica's part, and we refused to continue to love it. We wanted to work for it, but we weren't going to do it unless it could be funded in a way that the production could be professionally implemented and not be a a kind of a really crazy stress machine. Partly, we had moved to a triennial, um, and we found that corporate sponsors wanted more frequent identity than every three years could provide, so that was a problem. Um, We did bring in um, professional fundraisers and professional branding people and marketing people and PR people, So, and we did get a front page of the culture section of the New York Times. So we had what we thought were very solid ingredients for continued funding at the level that the event required, which is essentially a million dollars to produce. And when that seemed that was not within our reach, uh, Jessica made the call that it wouldn't go forward, which I supported completely. So it's a very good question. It brings a little pain to my heart. But we did three. I think it changed people's thinking about what events could be and what cities could be. And hopefully other people can learn from us and learn from GLOW and and have a more sustained event. But things don't have to last forever. Please um, join me in thanking our panelists. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.